We as a church are going through the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, calling it letters from your dad. Remember, that's a double entendre because on the one hand, there is Paul writing a letter to his spiritual children, the Christians in Thessalonica, this young church that he planted. And on, on the other hand, this is God's word to us, our spiritual dad, God himself, writing letters to us. Remember, these letters are packed with all kinds of parental advice. You know one of the things I most want from my two kids? I want them to get along. Right, parents? Like, I want them to love each other and to treat each other well. Caleb and Madison's relationship has gone up and down over the years. Like when they were little kids, they were best buddies, playing together all the time, had a blast. It was just sweet to watch them. And then they became teenagers. And that changed a little bit. Things got a little rocky for a while between the two of them. But it's been cool to watch them continue to mature. And our hearts have soared as parents as we hear them laughing together and having fun together. Uh, Caleb, uh, for a while, had a job. Madison didn't. And so he would buy things just to bless his sister. I'm like, Awesome. And then when, Kay, and when Madison went away to school, Caleb got really sad. It was really sweet to watch, but we didn't understand why at first. Evidently, they had developed a ritual that we didn't even know about because we're 50 and we go to bed at like 8 a.m. or 8, 8 p.m., right? But um, we go to bed really early. No, but, but they would be up. And so they had this midnight ritual that developed where they would meet in the kitchen for a midnight snack and just hang out and share life together. We didn't know what's going on. We're asleep. I can't hear the kitchen over Shannon snoring, right? Like, okay, so not true, so not true. Reverse that, we might be on track. Anyway, but, but, uh, but they're hanging out together, and it, we just absolutely love it. Parents, how often have you told your kids, just treat your sister nicely, just treat your brother well? And isn't that what we want as parents for our kids to get along? Okay, remember, we're God's kids. See where we're headed? What God's desire is for his children, us as brothers and sisters, to get along very, very well. And so our passage today is about brotherly love, love among Christian brothers and sisters. We're up to chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Here's our passage. This is now concerning brotherly love. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. All right? So this section, now concerning brotherly love. This is about brotherly love, and he affirms them. They're actually doing really, really well. Did you see what he said at the beginning? He said, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That's pretty cool. They test it out in this area. They, t- they didn't, didn't have to take the class. They test it out. Imagine God wants to address some area of Christian discipleship to the church, and he turns to you and says, but not you. You test it. You're doing so well, you don't even need to listen. 
That's pretty cool. I've got no area like that. <laughs> I got nothing in that category. I need to le- learn in every area. But they are nailing brotherly love. How are they nailing it? What I want to do is just give you a series of words, most of them right from that passage right there. And the first word is this, brothers. Now, in our day and age, we would say brothers and sisters. In that culture and in that language, that would have been a, an inclusive word to mean both of them. We'd say brothers and sisters or siblings. But then you say siblingly love, and it just sounds weird. Right, so we, we don't do that. But, but brothers, brothers, the point is that we are family. Throughout the New Testament, God intentionally chose family language to refer to us who join the Christian family. We're brothers and sisters. Now, he didn't have to. He could have had his apostles use more language like fellow soldiers, teammates, but he didn't. Over and over, he chose family language because when you receive Christ, I'm not talking going to church and getting involved in religion. I'm saying when you receive Christ by faith into your life, you are adopted by God. He becomes your dad, and you need to know something. You're not an only child. You're placed into a family, a family full of great brothers and sisters. You've got family. Now, we are a necessary gift to each other. Christianity simply cannot be lived out in isolation from Christian community. Another word for that is church. The New Testament knows nothing of a Christian in isolation from a church. It speaks very often about Christians being interwoven into the fabric of the family of faith. That's who we need to be. And if you are not interwoven into Christian community, you're doing it wrong. And it's going to cost you. And I don't want that for you. Now, this is very tough for us to hear as Americans. In our national psyche, we have the ideal of rugged American individualism. You just need to know that that ideal erodes things like community and commitment, and covenant. There was a Frenchman who came to the States about 160 years ago, and his name is Alexis de Tocqueville. I don't know if I'm saying it right. There, it's French, right? Good. Anyway, that's his name, and uh, here's what he had to say about us. He said, Such folk owe no man anything, and hardly expect anything from anybody. They form the habit of thinking of themselves in isolation and imagine that their whole destiny is in their own hands. Now, some of you just heard that went, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. That is American individualism. And you need to know, while that is thoroughly American, it is at the same time thoroughly unbiblical. It's just not what dad wants for us. He wants us to be family. We've got brothers. We've got sisters. All right, that's the first word is brothers. Now, the second word is love. It talks about brotherly love. Now, in this context, love is not some warm, fuzzy, emotional feeling. This is love in action. There's evidence through both of these letters that they were really taking care of each other financially. There were people in need, and they were just given sick amounts of money to take care of each other, right? 
like you you pry money out of an American's hands to care for somebody else. Like that's saying something. Like they were in for each other. And there's an incredible wealth of New Testament passages that talk about fellow Christians taking care of each other. I'll just give you one of them. First John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 says this. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love, the, love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Notice, it's particularly focused on giving and taking care of brothers, fellow Christians. But the, the role model there is Jesus himself. Did you notice? Jesus, when he came across us, we're drowning in our sins. And Jesus didn't say, you know, I really love you. And so I'm sad for you. I hope that goes well. And walk away. What he did is he laid down his life for us. And now the challenge is, be like Jesus. Lay down your life. That's what it says. For your brethren, your brothers and sisters. And when you see your sister in need, when you see your brother in need, it's always inconvenient. <laughs> it's always inconvenient. But we do it as worship to God, to our fellow, our, our common dad, our, our spiritual father. We love him, therefore we love his children. And out of worship, we take care of each other. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's love and action. That's what it is. And what Paul affirms them for is they had this brotherly love. Did you notice it said, for all the brothers in Macedonia? That's our next word. It's all. All. All in the Greek means all. It, it's, that's what, it's exactly what it means, okay? And, and so this is different. Family is different than friends, okay? With your friends, you choose your friends. You unchoose your friends, and so you have friends that you like, that they're like you and you have a lot of fun with. Family's different. Sometimes you got, some of y'all got funky family, right? You got that weird uncle, that weird cousin that we don't want to talk about, but they're family, right? Family of faith is very similar. We've got some weird cousins and some weird uncles in our family, okay? Uh, it's, it's very similar. In our household, when we talk about weird uncles and weird cousins, we call it the Sebring side. That's Shannon's maiden name, right there. I, okay, just I say that, and then I get in trouble every time. Uh, and it's, again, not really the truth. But uh, anyway, well, we got weird uncles and cousins in our family, the Christian family, and we are called to love all of them. Listen to these words from J.A. Zeisler. He's a New Testament scholar. He said this. What characterizes love among the family of Christ is that it does not exclude anybody. Jesus said clearly that anybody can learn to love the people who love him. Anybody can be nice to people who are guaranteed to be nice in turn. There's nothing difficult about that. What sets Christian love apart is that it is love for people who have nothing in common with you. Love for people you might otherwise overlook or despise or have nothing to do with. We do have some in common. It's Jesus, and that compels us. Now, if we're honest, man, I'll be honest. To be honest, there are some times where I do not want to associate with particular Christians. 
I'll, I'll go on social, social media. I'll see some people being hyper-political. See racism coming out, pissiness and just grossness and over and over. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know them. I don't know them. But you know what? Maybe it's that. Maybe, maybe you've been hurt by some Christian or some group of Christians and you don't want to associate with them. But what I want you to do is learn to put that in the balance, okay? Think of balance scales, okay? And on one side of the balance, look at this list right here. Here's what I want you to put there. Your fellow Christian is made in the image of God. That fellow Christian, if truly a Christian, right, Jesus died for them. And then he called them and claimed them. Okay, called and claimed by God. They are adopted as a child of God, which means we have the same dad. And then they are destined for heaven, which means we're going to be together a long time. A long time. They are designed to worship God. And that is my sister. That is my brother. We's family. Family. Now, put that on one side of the balance scales, and on the other side, that person talks too much. Right? Or, or maybe that person gossiped about you. Yeah, it hurts. Yeah, it needs addressed. But still. Or maybe I disagree with them politically. Whatever it is, that outweighs it by a lot. By a lot. And so we love all. We love all. Now, what I want to do next is I want to give you one aspect of all that is not verbatim in the passage, like it's not right out of the quote, but it's actually strongly implied there. And the next word is this, it's interracial. It's interracial. Now, how did I get there? Well, remember, uh, the church in Thessalonica is almost entirely made up of Gentiles. That's non-Jews, okay? Paul is a Jew of Jews. He is a Pharisee by training. He would have grown up hating Gentiles, calling them dogs, right? Uh, they, the ethnic difference, they, he would have grown up believing God is for us, not for them. Now, Jesus has so invaded his heart and changed his life, he launches this church. It's primarily Gentile. He writes to them, and what does he call them? Dogs? Brothers. 28 times in these two letters, Paul uses the word brothers to refer to this ethnically different church. They are still family. They're family. And so if you want to know kind of a good visual representation of what the family of God looks like, it looks a lot like the Stiegel family. Look at this picture. That's a, one of the families in our church. We're blessed with many interracial families. They've got... Uh, brown, black, and white. I, I'm trying to lobby for them to adopt an Asian kid. They feel like it's their decision. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful family. And I just got to tell you, that family picture right there is a better representation of the body of Christ than if you were to look at a McKee family photo. That's a great representation. We're family. We're family. And Paul crossed those ethnic barriers because Jesus had changed him, and all meant all. Okay? All right. Well, I don't want you to miss out on the beauty and the breadth of the body of Christ. Don't miss out on it, okay? Now, one other aspect of all, though, and, and this word is in the passage, it's Macedonia. 
You see Macedonia in there? Paul affirmed them for loving all the brothers throughout Macedonia. What's that mean? Well, remember, Thessalonica is just a city. It's in this whole region with other cities called Macedonia. So evidently, this young church, was they were loving Christians they didn't even know in other cities. I don't know what that looked like, but it was, must have been really cool. Listen, I live in Kent, and if you try to get me to love people in Ravenna, that's going to take a move of the Holy Spirit, okay? Like, <clears throat> that would be miraculous. They were doing it, and how were they doing it? Man, I, I don't know. But I'll tell you what. Have you ever seen videos when, um, when like... Family members that didn't know they were family, like somehow they find each other. Maybe they were siblings separated at birth through adoption or something, and then they find each other. Or mom finds a lost child, lost child finds mom, dad, whatever. And what do they do? They hug, right? Now, wait a minute. They're strangers. Why do they cry and run and hug? Because they're family. Even though they've never met, they're family, and it changes things. And I've experienced that. When I go on mission trips around the globe, whether it's a missionary that's in country there, or more often than not, it's, it's the people that live there, the, the indigenous people. And when I meet them, and they're my brother, they're my sister in Christ, there's family. And I feel it. And it's thick. And there's love, and there's worship, and there's kinship. Like I've never, in uh, man, hugs right away. We're family. We're family. All means all. Now, one of the shocking things about this church, remember, they have been Christians for less than a year. I've been a Christian for 34 years, and I still don't like you people. Okay, that's not true. But it took me a while, right? Like, how'd they get there so fast? So much so that they test it out. They are nailing it. They're nailing it. How'd they do it? Well, two more words. The first one is transform. They were transformed by Jesus. They met Jesus. They were loving Jesus. Jesus transformed them from the inside out. So, so don't get an image in your mind that somehow they were like doing willpower and gutting this out and making it happen and trying to run. No. It just flowed because they loved Jesus. They were transformed and this flowed out of them. So here Paul is rejoicing over them, not because they raised their hand, prayed a prayer, came forward, got baptized. That's not it. He's rejoicing over them because they had really met Jesus and been transformed by Jesus. And the very clear, specific evidence of it is that they were loving each other as Christians. Dad was watching his kids get along, and he loved it. They were transformed. And then the last word uh, that I have for you at this point is trenches. Trenches. Meaning, in like a soldier analogy, they were in the trenches together. Remember, they were experiencing a lot of affliction and persecution right out of the gates. And there is that effect, whether you know, we have a lot of vets in our congregation, uh, even if you're not a vet, you probably have heard of the effect, that when soldiers go to battle together and you're in the trenches together, they bond like crazy in those trenches, don't they? Because the, the, you have a common enemy and they're shooting at you together and you're together and they bond. And this was happening for those Christians in Thessalonica. Listen, a lot of churches, sadly, lack vision, they lack mission, they lack purpose, they lack drive. And what happens is the brothers and sisters end up fighting over the color of carpet. It happens. Why? Because we're made for a battle. And if we don't put the battle out there, we put the battle in between us. And I'll tell you, I've been so blessed 
You know, we just went through a major building project and there was like zero fussing and fighting. And I am so thankful to you guys for that. That is really, really cool. But it's because our hearts are in it. We didn't do it for us. We did it for those yet to come, that they might meet Jesus. We did it for our Lord. There's vision, there's mission. We're in the trenches together, and that makes a difference. Makes a difference. All right, so that is what undergirds their brotherly love. Now, another word for brotherly love, basically what I'm talking about this morning, is fellowship. Fellowship simply means a uh, commitment to community based on a common cause. For us, the common cause is Jesus. He unites us as family, and we have fellowship. Now, every time I hear the word fellowship, I'm a dude, so I think of Lord of the Rings. Right? Very first book, Fellowship of the Ring. And it is really a great picture of Christian fellowship. Because what do you have there? You have different races. Humans and hobbits, dwarves and elves. Dwarves and elves are natural enemies, and yet they come together in the fellowship, and two of them learn to love each other. It's a beautiful part of it. Tolkien was saying something. They were united together. Why? For a cause. They had a common enemy. They were in the trenches together. They learned to love and take care of each other. It was a beautiful picture of fellowship. Now, one of the things the movies, in my opinion, got wrong is they left out an important part. At the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, the way Merry and Pippin join the band at first, Frodo's trying to sneak out of the Shire, and, and they basically find out, and they're like determined they're going to go along with him. Frodo catches them, and, and it's, it doesn't know if he can trust them. And so here's what Merry says in response. Depends on what you want, put in Merry. You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin, to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf has told you. We know a good deal about the ring. We are horribly afraid, but we are coming with you or following you like hounds. Oh. That's fellowship. That is it. That's what it means to be in the body of Christ. Welcome to the family. We're in with you. Like it or not, we'll follow you like hounds. We're family. Now, I've got to be honest with you. There is a, uh, a lingering problem kind of hanging in the air with all of this. If we follow God's commandments here about Christian fellowship, doesn't that mean that we're opened up to being taken advantage of. Like, if you lean in with this kind of commitment to fellow Christians, won't some Christians take advantage of that? Yeah. <laughs> yes, they will. And so what Dad did is he intentionally penned in some boundaries related to just that. It's the second half of the passage. Look at this. He said, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So he gives three boundaries there. The first is that we live quietly. That's not about decibel level, okay? That is about living a simple life 
peaceful life. Non-contentious. Not fighting with everyone. It's the kind of person that doesn't drain a congregation at all. As opposed to the other kind that drains a lot. Okay, so live a quiet life. And then he says, mind your own affairs. Mind your business. Right? Which means you mind your business and you don't mind other people's business. Right? That's one of the boundaries put in place. Which means stop gossiping. Christians, we're just as bad as the world, sometimes worse, because we, we try to dress it up as prayer requests, right? Pray for so-and-so. Why? Well, let me tell you. It's just gossip under another name. Mind your business. Okay? That's a boundary. And then work. Now, this one where he tells them to work, this is really where people were taking advantage of Christian fellowship. Some of the Thessalonian Christians had said, hey, Jesus is coming back. So now that I'm a Christian, I don't have to work. Okay? So they left gainful employment. They could have worked. They were choosing not to because I'm just going to be a Christian now. As if somehow Christian equals you don't have to have a job. Now they still had mouths though. So then they wanted to eat. So how would they eat? What they did is they mooched off other Christians in order to feed themselves and their family. And Paul said, stop it. Go back to work. Be a good worker. Don't be dependent on other people. Go earn so that you may have something to give. That's in Ephesians chapter 4. Work so that you may have something to give. So yes, because of our commitment to Christian fellowship, some will take advantage of that. Notice what Paul does though. Who does he correct? He corrects the takers, not the givers. To be honest, sometimes in the face of that, what we want to do is correct our giving. I'm not going to give, I'm going to pull back. That's not what Paul does. He affirms the giving. He corrects the takers. Puts boundaries there. And you're going to have to choose because um, you, you have only two options, really. One, you will occasionally, occasionally be taken advantage of if you're a giver. But the alternative is this. You can be isolated and protect yourself and become hard and cold and stingy and distant. And it will hurt you. It'll hurt you. I'm not encouraging you to be unwise or to be reckless. Sometimes you need to set up some good boundaries. But if somebody is a stubborn taker, that's on them. Whether or not you're a giver, that's on you. That's on you. So, how do you approach your church? Is it more to give or to take, right? Like, like ask not what your church can do for you, but ask what you can do for your church, that kind of thing. Like, do you, do you give more or do you take more? Now, granted, we all have needs. We all have to take at some point. <clears throat> but, uh, have, have any of you heard of the parable of the long-handled spoon? A rabbi came up with it. You might be recognized, but basically he said, hey, let me explain to you two rooms. One's hell and one's heaven. And he walks the guy to the first room and he opens the door. And what he sees in the room of hell, there's this big round table. And in the, pot of it, in the middle of it is a pot of wonderful stew. But everyone around the table is starving. And they're all angry and they're all bitter toward each other. 
the, the problem is the spoons that they have have such long handles that when they get the soup, they can't, they can't get it to their mouth. It's too unwieldy. And it's a horrible situation they're in. So he takes the guy down the hall to the next room that represents heaven. Pretty much the same exact setup. Big round table, pot of wonderfully aromatic stew in the middle. It just smells great, looks great. They're all well-fed and they're all happy and joyful. What's the difference? Because they took the long-handled spoon and they fed each other. When we feed each other, we all eat. That is what's going on in Thessalonica. That is what God wants for his church in Stowe. And so I want you to think, do I give more or do I take more at church? And this matters for a couple reasons. It matters for you. It'll affect your life. It matters for our church. But make no mistake, it matters for our witness. If you look at the end there, that we walk properly before outsiders. Paul's point is that the world is watching. And they want to know, does Jesus make a difference? Does the gospel make a difference? Like, are Christians, are they hardworking or are they lazy? Are they givers or are they takers? Do they love each other or are they selfish and bitter? Do they have a tongue of discretion or a tongue of gossip? Does Jesus make a difference? And so notice then that their discipleship to Jesus wasn't just a Sunday morning thing. It was like a seven days a week while you're at work kind of thing. And it was gorgeous. And they took care of each other to such an alarming degree that the world snapped its head at that. They were shocked by it. In fact, they were attracted to it, and the church was growing like crazy because of how they were taking care of each other. And so may it be at Redemption Chapel. I would just love that. All right, so what do we do with this? few thoughts of application here. First, I, I want you to prioritize Christian fellowship among the relationships in your life. Christian fellowship is not extra, and it's not bonus. It's a matter of spiritual survival. You absolutely need it. Understand this. Your, your friends, they are traveling companions. Your friends are traveling companions. So if you want to know where you're headed... Look where your friends are headed. And if you hang out with them long enough, that's where you will end up. Okay? Listen, don't tell me that all your friends are headed south and you hang out with them all the time, but you're headed north. That's just silliness. That's just not going to work. I think of a hypothetical addict in our congregation. and this woman wants to walk with Jesus and, and she wants to get clean and stay clean, but she hangs out all the time with active addicts and their activity is getting drunk and getting high. Well, guess what? Or she lives with her boyfriend who's getting drunk and high all the time. I mean, it's not rocket science, right? Those are your traveling companions. Now you could say, Pastor, are you saying that I should ditch all my non-Christian friends? In a sense, yeah. <laughs> Hear me clearly, though. Don't, don't lose the relationship. Don't lose the connection, but shift the category. Instead of friends who shape your life and influence your life, 
you'll maintain connection and relationship because now you want to shape them and influence them for Christ. They're going to become targets of prayer, targets of the gospel, tar targets of loving them and serving them, but not traveling companions who shape your life. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you need traveling companions who are also disciples of Jesus Christ. And many of you are allowing yourselves to regularly be influenced by non-Christians, and then you're standing back scratching your head going, why am I not growing very much? You chose poorly on your traveling companions. So I have a quiz for you to take this week, all right? Some of you will want to get your phones ready. You want all four questions up there? You can snap a picture then. But here it is. Uh, what I want you to do is I want you to make a list of all your, your friends, your closer relationships, closer relatives, the coworkers you kind of hang out with over lunch, whatever. And then what I want you to do is evaluate each one of them by four questions. The first question is this. Are they walking with Jesus? Not, well, they're not Jewish and they're not Muslim and, they go to church on Christmas and Easter, and they pray to prayer back in the... No, no, no. Are they walking with Jesus? That's the first question. The second question is this. Do they call sin, sin, or do they celebrate and encourage sin? Like, is, is the relationship all filled with gossip and, and drunkenness and angst and bitterness and sensuality and greed? Those are your traveling companions, right? Second question is this. Or, excuse me, third is this. Do they encourage deeper discipleship to Jesus? Right? So, so when it comes to things like giving and serving and reading your Bible and praying, all that stuff, do you do it more or less because of your connection to that person? And then fourth and last question is this. If Jesus were to show up physically when you're hanging out with this person, would you have to adjust? Would you have to change the song that you're listening to at the time? Uh, would you have to change the topic of conversation? Would you have to change the activity? Would you be embarrassed by Jesus showing up? Or in front of Jesus, would you be embarrassed about your friend? Or would Jesus just fit right in comfortably in that relationship? All right? Now, there's four questions. What I want you to do, list out all your friends, and each relationship, each person is going to get one point for every good answer. So each one's going to get a score of zero to four. And what you're going to find out is if your life is full of zero to twos, you don't have good traveling companions. Don't change, like, maintain the connection, but change the category, right? What I want you to do is to be a believer who has a life full of, of threes and fours. Because listen, while you're grading each one, at the end of the day, you're not grading your friends. You're grading yourself. You get that? You're grading yourself. If you are surrounded by zeros and twos, it's not your friend's fault. It's yours. And you've got to take responsibility for that, okay? So that's the quiz I want you to take this week. Now, some of you will test really well on that. And so I have a challenge for you. Did you notice that Paul, as he wrote to them, he affirmed them, you're doing really well, but then he said, do it more and more. So the question is, how can you go deeper in Christian fellowship? Maybe you've got a tons of threes and fours in your life, but you need to be one who really commits to meeting new people on Sunday morning. Maybe you need to be committed to loving the unlovable in our congregation. 
You're going to be used by the Holy Spirit to do that. Maybe you need to take those three and four relationships, and they're not really deep. Like, you need to take a, a risk, take a step of faith, and open up and be vulnerable and say, this is the real stuff going on in my life, and would you pray for me? And you're going to take it deeper because you're going to go more and more. What's that look like for you? All right? I want you to mull that over with the Holy Spirit this week. For now, let me pray for you. Father in heaven, uh, thank you so, so very much that by grace and grace alone, you are our dad. Thank you for what Jesus did to adopt us into the family. And yet we want to acknowledge we are not only children. We're in a great family. Thank you for that gift. Father God, would you help us to, to really move toward our brothers and sisters with brotherly love and all of them and love all of them and be used by you to take the temperature of Christian fellowship in our church up. Would you do that in our midst, please? And we pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.